Welcome back to the program. Almost every week, movie and TV screens are filled with new and repackaged superheroes. Audiences continue to flock to them, but what's the appeal when we hear about real-life heroes like Sully Sullenberger or Wesley Autry, who jumped onto a New York subway track to save a man from an oncoming train? We are captivated by those stories. Perhaps our fascination is because we can't ever imagine ourselves exercising such a degree of selflessness. We might fantasize about being heroes, but don't think that we have the right stuff. In fact, science, genetics, and social psychology now tell us that we all, under the right circumstances and with the right experience, have what it takes. My guest, Elizabeth Sabota, in her new book, What Makes a Hero, examines how biology, upbringing, and external influences all converge to produce altruistic and heroic behavior. It is my pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Sabota to the program to talk about what makes a hero. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. Great to have you here. One of the things that science has begun to tell us is that there are various aspects of the human brain that are kind of primed to be selfless. Talk a little bit about that. Right. Um, The interesting thing in the past few years is with um, functional MRI imaging, we can see different areas of the brain that are activated when we're doing certain things. And the interesting thing, um, I talked to a researcher at the University of Oregon who uh, took people, put them in the scanner, and looked at their brains while they were making decisions about whether they were going to give some of their money to a food bank, like a particular charity. And what he found oftentimes was that an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens uh, was activated when somebody decided to give to this good cause, and that's actually an area that's associated with reward. So, you know, in some ways, giving to somebody else who you consider worthy feels a little bit like getting a high yourself, getting a gift, you know, seeing a, a friend that you haven't seen for a long time. It, it's definitely uh, a biological lift that you get. Um, so, yeah, cer- certainly there are all these brain studies that show um, the underpinnings of some sort of biological basis for for selflessness. At the same time, though, um, I also like to emphasize that there are a lot of things that we can do to to improve our potential to be selfless or, or maybe even to be heroic in the right situation. One of the other things that impact that, the degree to which we're willing to be selfless, the degree to which we can be empathetic, is the experience and the suffering that, and the pain that we individually might have gone through. Yes, that's very true. In fact, uh, there's a chapter about that in my book, this idea that if we go through difficult experiences, um, that actually might make us more inclined to help others later on. There was a really interesting study I came across um, by the researcher Urban Staub, and he found that people who had gone through um some kind of difficulty themselves, um, whether it was a natural disaster or violence, something of that nature, they were then more likely to say that they would be willing to donate to victims of an Asian tsunami. So we we think what's going on is that in in some ways these people knew what it was like, um, the suffering that these people in the tsunami were going through, and that knowledge was what motivated them to, to reach out. And I think oftentimes if we look at our own lives, uh, we can see examples of how this is the case. You, you know, if we've been victims of domestic abuse, for instance, we might feel inspired to reach out to other people who find 
themselves in that same situation. So I, I think it's inspiring because it's an example of how we can draw on the things that have been difficult for us in the past that have caused us pain to then uh, help other people from experiencing the same depths of that pain or help them out of the depths of that pain. How much does our own perception of what is heroic influence the actions that we might take, the degree to which we've we've witnessed others either in a fictional sense or in a real sense be heroic? Yes. Um, th- there is a huge role for role models in helping us come up with our conceptions of what we consider heroic. And, you know, that may influence our behavior later on. A, a lot of the studies about heroism um, center around the topic of rescuers, um, often, you know, people who are willing to rescue Jewish people during the Holocaust, for example. And, and there was one researcher who interviewed a lot of these rescuers to see if there was anything special about their personalities or anything that sort of distinguished them um, from regular people. And what he found was that many of them did have people that they looked up to um, early in their lives, might have been their parents, um, might have been somebody else that was close to them. But those people really served as an example of selflessness for them. And then when they came into the situation where they had an opportunity to be selfless in a, in a big way, they remembered that example, and in some ways they modeled their behavior on that example, and they spoke about that later on when people asked them to reflect on, well, why did you do this? Why were you willing to put yourself on the line this way? One of the other things you talk about, and this is an extension of this in some respects, is experience, the way in which experience can be brought to bear in a split-second decision to be heroic. Yes, I think oftentimes people think, oh, you know, heroes are heroes because they're born a certain way. But in fact, it has a lot to do with practical things like, do you have the appropriate training to intervene in a particular situation? Um, this past year, we, we were all inspired by some of the heroic people who stepped in after the Boston Marathon bombing attacks, for instance, um, to help some of the people who had limb injuries and things like that. And what we saw is that a lot of those people who really jumped in and were helpers had some kind of medical expertise. Um, They might have been EMTs, they might have been doctors or or had military experience, things like that. Um, And and you spoke earlier about Chesley Sullenberger, the pilot who was able to land a plane on the Hudson River basically like a glider uh, when both of the engines got knocked out and so all the passengers were saved because of his quick thinking. And he was somebody who had decades of experience and I'm sure uh, that that experience kicked in when he had to decide what to do in this very unusual situation. To what extent have you found that faith plays a role in the heroic actions of people? That's a good question. I, I think partially that is unresolved but uh, if your religion is what encourages you, I think, to look at other people as worthy of respect, worthy of assistance, I mean, you see this principle at the core of many of the world's great religions. I, I think that those values could certainly help you along your heroic quest. That, that said, I don't like to think about it in terms of, you know, only members of a particular religion have this potential. I, I am a strong believer that most of us, if not all of us, have the potential to be heroic if we're motivated and 
you know, in, in some cases, if we're in the right place at the right time. What do we know about the genetic component of all of this? Yeah, I, I mean, there may be some genetic components. Um, we've looked at some of the the reasons that these genetic components may have evolved. Um, one theory is that um, we help others that aren't related to us because, you know, groups where members cooperate with one another um, over time and over generations, those groups may actually have flourished more so than groups where there's a lot of fighting and conflict and a lot of people are getting killed. So there's this idea that, you know, you're actually improving your own uh, chances of passing your genes along um, by pitching in and contributing to the well-being of the group. So that, that there may be some motivation to be selfless in that sense, that it improves our chances of, of passing our own genes along. Is there an impact in terms of our being heroic with people that are more like us? Is there a tendency that we will be selfless to help people that are similar to ourselves? Yes, I, I think certainly there is. I, I went to a Science of Compassion conference um, last year in Colorado, and there was a really interesting study um, presented where when an experimental subject was tapping their hands in time with someone else, you know, someone they didn't really know, but they could see that uh, that this person was tapping their hands in time with them, um, that person was then more likely to help that other person out later on. And so, you know, it can be something as small as that, but if we think that we have something in common with somebody else, that that's when our empathy with them tends to arise. And so if you can find these points of identification with somebody else, you know, whether it's that you love the 49ers just like they do or that, you know, you know that we both care about our children's future, um, things like that can really improve our propensity to then reach out to those people and empathize with them. To what extent are people sometimes surprised by the heroic actions that they take? I think especially when it comes to these types of in-the-moment heroic rescues, uh, you do see an element of surprise, like, I, I can't believe I was able to do that. But, you know, oftentimes if you look at the lives of these people, they have undergone some kind of advanced preparation that um, in a way primed them to intervene the way they did in this moment, e even if they didn't anticipate this exact thing taking place. Um, you had mentioned, I think, Wesley Autry at the beginning of our chat, um, and he was somebody who uh, he saw that there was another subway passenger who had stumbled onto the tracks, and he immediately jumped onto the tracks to press this guy down into the space between the tracks so that the train wouldn't be able to run him over. And basically, so Wesley Autry was pressing this guy down, the train was rolling over both of their heads, and there was about an inch or so of space uh, between Wesley Autry's head and the bottom of the train. So, you know, a highly risky action, but um, I found out from the psychologist Phil Zimbardo that when Autry was a little kid, he actually used to play on the subway tracks in probably a pretty dangerous way and you know he would actually kind of jump under the trains for fun so so he felt like in that moment when he had to do something he, he kind of probably said I, I've done this before in a certain way and 
I am uniquely equipped to help this guy out. Are there gender differences in heroics? Do women approach this differently than men do? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily across the board. I, I think sometimes you see men getting more involved in the physical style of heroism, like if you're trying to uh, I- intervene to stop an armed robbery on the street or, or something like that. Um, th- there was a study that found that people who intervene in these kind of very risky situations are more likely to have had um, some kind of rescue training, some kind of uh, you know, life-saving training. And sometimes um, those p- people who have had these types of training can skew uh, to be more male. But I, I think you-, you can't necessarily draw any definite conclusions. There was um, that bookkeeper at the Georgia school recently, um, Antoinette Tuff, and she was somebody who was able to talk down th- this kid that was wanting to shoot up all- the other kids in the school and she was the one who was able to stay calm and she was able to convince him to put his weapon down you know at risk to her own life and that that is an extremely heroic act so i i don't like to say that you know only men are capable of being heroic that that's been sort of the traditional view but we see women carrying out heroic acts all the time as well what do we learn, Elizabeth, from the reverse of all of this? People that don't act heroically when they have opportunities. Yeah, there are a number of factors that may hold us back from helping, uh, depending on the situation. Just on a global scale, I think if we read in a news article, for example, that um, 50,000 people died somewhere in a country that we've never heard of, you know, you might think on the face of it that people would jump on that as an opportunity for heroic intervention and, you know, try to do anything they can to save other victims. But in fact, you know, when we see those large numbers, we don't really process what that means very well. Um, It's hard for us to naturally empathize. It's much easier to identify with the suffering of individuals. Um, If you look at um, like Anne Frank's diary, uh, For example, I think that's very effective because we get to know this one young girl through her writing. And, you know, while we might not be able to process the idea that six million people were killed in a Holocaust, our brains can't really uh, wrap themselves around that. But through getting to know this girl on a very personal level, it enables us to understand this tragedy a little bit better. So, you know, if you want to kind of circumvent this tendency we have to tune out when we hear about large-scale tragedies, large-scale disasters. Um, Look at them on an individual level. Like, you know, if you're concerned about the school dropout program in your community, get to know some students, you know, get get involved in a mentoring program. That's the way you're going to awaken your empathy and your motivation to do something about these big problems. Where does fear enter into the equation when people act heroically in dangerous situations? To what extent is fear a part of it, and how is that overcome? I mean, I, I think what comes to mind is um, that when we're courageous, it doesn't mean that we don't have fear. In fact, in these very difficult situations, I think most of us would say, well, yeah, of course we have fear. Um, but it, it's the decision that there's something more important that that fear than that fear that we need to override it for the greater good. Um, and sometimes 
training can help with that. I, I got to visit a very interesting organization called Courageous Leadership while I was researching my book, and they actually will train people to um, intervene in situations at work where there are ethical wrongs being committed. And I think for a lot of us, fear enters into that because, you know, we might not necessarily want to bring a certain issue up with our boss, like, you know, hey, another employee is doing something unethical or cooking the books or something like that. We might not be sure how the boss is going to respond, if we're going to get blamed in some way. There there are a lot of things that influence us to, to hold back, and, and a lot of that is our fear. But um, w- with courageous leadership, there's actually training where uh, the people that participate go through a rehearsal process and practice intervening in some of the situations that scare them so much. It's almost like a, a mock dialogue where, you know, somebody else plays your boss, somebody plays your colleague. And oftentimes what's interesting, what they find is that intervening is not necessarily as scary as they feared it was going to be. And then that empowers them to intervene in similar situations in real life. So, yeah, I mean, I think the fear is always going to be there, but there are ways that we can practice standing up to that fear and almost becoming comfortable with it. Okay, the fear is going to be there, but how can we act in spite of that fear? I think that's the key. To what degree can any of this be taught? To what extent can it be part of training programs among groups, among businesses, corporations, etc.? That's something that's in the very early stages of being investigated, certainly at programs like Courageous Leadership, they're investigating whether this kind of moral fortitude can be taught in a corporate setting. And then at the Heroic Imagination Project in San Francisco, uh, the psychologist Phil Zimbardo is investigating can heroic principles be taught to high school students. And I actually got to sit in on a few of those classes, which was very interesting. And part of the philosophy behind that is to teach kids about the pitfalls that our brains kind of fall into that might lead us astray um, from heroic behavior. Uh, for example, there's something called the bystander effect where um, the more people that are in the area when somebody needs help, uh, the less likely any one of them is to help. The, the thought can be, oh, you know, there are lots of people around. Somebody else is going to help. So, so you just pass by and you don't do anything. Um but Dr. Zimbardo thinks that if we can educate kids about these types of, of impulses that we sometimes have, um, they, they can sort of hit the pause button when they're in one of these moments is the way he describes it. Um, you know, think clearly about what they're going to do instead of responding in this sort of knee-jerk fashion. Um, for instance, you know, if you see another student getting bullied, um, do you step in or, or do you hang back? And you, if you have some knowledge of, you know, the ways your brain might be leading you astray, so to speak, that might help you to do the right thing in the moment where it counts. What do we still need to understand about heroic behavior? What is the cutting edge of the research at this point? Um, th- there's a lot in terms of how well interventions work. Um, For instance, there's been a lot of investigation to see whether um, compassion meditation and different types of compassion training can actually motivate us to to be more generous, to do more things for people in need. But it's a very 
difficult area to study because, you know, if you really want to assess the effectiveness of one of these programs, it's almost like you'd have to follow somebody around 24-7 and see, okay, you know, do they really do more heroic things in their life or are they really more helpful over the course of months, over the course of years? And you can see how that type of research would be very time-consuming and difficult to to carry out. And so, sort of where it's at right now is that in the lab, um, when they carry out um, di- different computer scenarios where they have a chance to give um, people who have taken some of these compassion training courses do behave more altruistically than people who have not taken these courses. So I think that's a good initial indication. But I think one of the things that I'm really going to be looking to is what are the long-term results of these programs and are they capable of instilling um, heroic and, and generous values that will carry with us throughout our lives. Elizabeth Swoboda, the book is What Makes a Hero? The Surprising Science of Selflessness. Elizabeth, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.